weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. The time? The early 1970s. The place? Jacksonville, Florida. A new sound was beginning to emerge. Music history was being made. Homegrown talent was getting noticed, and musicians from all over were heading here to what would become the epicenter of the Southern rock music scene. Bands competed for the spotlight, honing their skills, and some would go on to score major record deals. Jacksonville proved to be the perfect breeding ground for up-and-coming talent. We're going to go back to that time and place and relive the early days of Southern rock. Today we're speaking with Michael Ray Fitzgerald, whose new book, Jacksonville and the Roots of Southern Rock, shines a light on the artists and songs that powered a phenomenon. The Allman Brothers Band and Leonard Skinner helped usher in a new kind of Southern music from Jacksonville, Florida. Together, they and fellow bands like Blackfoot, 38 Special, and Molly Hatchet would reset the course of 70s rock. Yet Jacksonville seemed an unlikely hotbed for a new musical movement. Dr. Fitzgerald is a freelance writer and media historian. He has written hundreds of articles for local, regional, national, and international publications. He's a former career musician and has bore witness to the roots of Southern music that runs so deep in Jacksonville. Thank you, Dr. Fitzgerald, for being with us today. Thank you, Mia, for having me. You had firsthand experience. I mean, you're not from Jacksonville, but your family moved to Jacksonville, correct? And then you got into the music scene as a teenager? Yes, coincidentally, we moved here just as things were beginning to explode. And why do you think Jacksonville was the epicenter for this place? I understand there was a lot of these teen clubs that people could play in. Oh, there's a confluence of factors. Probably the biggest one would be the uh, 50,000-watt radio station that was located just outside of Jacksonville. And they would the station would occasionally play record recordings by local acts. Uh, One of them was the Second Coming, a band who had just arrived here from Bradenton, which included Dickie Betts and Barry Oakley. Now, for those that may not understand what Southern rock is, could you explain that Southern rock sound? I know you said it's hard to describe Southern rock, but basically what's the melding of sounds that would classify Southern rock? Well, it starts with psychedelic music or what we called underground music in those days, which was music that hippies listened to. And it could actually uh, hippie music could have been anything from jug band music to blues to uh, acid rock. I mean, there was no one particular sound or style. And then you add the Southern influences on top of that, which the two most primary Southern influences would have been blues and country. So how do you think Southern rock evolved? Well, there were groups doing it, experimenting with it before the Allman Brothers did it here. And a lot of my Jacksonville peeps are really upset to hear me say Jacksonville was not the birthplace of Southern rock. <laughs> but, but there were groups all over the place experimenting with adding blues and country to rock. And... Uh, Some of the names that come to mind would be Delaney Bramlett in Los Angeles, Delaney, who was working with Leon Russell in 67. And then the Grateful Dead were kind of experimenting with 
bluegrass and country at some point. And the band in New York was experimenting with adding country to the hippie Irv, you know. And so there were bands doing this before the Almond Brothers did it here in Jackson, here in Jackson. But this was like a vortex, like musicians were drawn here. Why were they drawn to this? Like, why did Jacksonville become this epicenter? Because there were so many gigs. I mean, you, Dickie Betts, you know, from the second coming and later with the Almond Brothers band, had, had been coming to Jacksonville since 65 to work. Uh, he came up here with in 65 with a band called The Jesters. And he told his friends in Bradenton, if you want to work, you go to Jacksonville because there's so many gigs to be had. And there were. There were bottle clubs, teen clubs, bars, restaurants, just any kind of opportunity for live music. There were millions of them. So you can make a decent decent living like you can always have work depends on what you call a decent living but yeah you had a good chance of of getting some work here in jacksonville in those days let's talk about the main divide because you're you're talking about hippie music on one you know long hair sort of artistic type and then you're you're talking a little bit like leonard skinnerd where it's more kind of synonymous with redneck or with a with more of a harder rough around the edges rock edge why do you think there was this split or this divide and and from what i understand it w- it got a little tentious where people would fight yeah you have nailed the key issue right here it was the divide between rednecks whom we called greasers and hippies who we called long hairs and they hated each other and what really exacerbated that rift was the movie Easy Rider in 69 where, you know, the hippies got murdered by a couple of rednecks in a pickup truck. So uh, I was in Jacksonville at this and uh, Dickie Best said when he came to Jacksonville, they were the only long hairs in town and people would throw stuff at them. People would, you know, give them a really bad time. And uh, so how are you going to reconcile these two poles? I never saw it coming. Dickie reconciled it. And following in his footsteps, Ronnie Van Zant reconciled it. The two of them were what we called redneck hippies. They were hippies. They were long-haired guys who used drugs recreationally, uh, but they were also violent guys who would use, you know, their fists to solve problems. In it, you mentioned you were you were on the Almond Brothers side. <laughs> well, the Almond Brothers side of the fence. Yeah, yeah. The Almond Brothers were old, a little bit older, I think. Then the Skinner boys, who were called the 1% when I moved here. And they were a much better band, more polished. They were virtuoso musicians. Or excuse me, the second coming. All the other bands in Jacksonville had to really, you know, brush up on their game when the second coming hit town. Well, not only brush up on their game, from what I understand, because of the fact there's so many people that were in Jacksonville, it was very competitive and you could be weeded out quickly. Like you had to step up your game. You had to step up your game. <laughs> no no slackers on stage. Which brings me to another point that you say Leonard Skinner was like one of the hardest working bands because they weren't considered the best singer or the best songwriters, but they worked hard. They were the underdogs of, of music and they had catchy songs, which I guess perseverance and hard work can prevail all that to make them successful. Yeah, you got it exactly right. The Skinner boys were the underdogs on the local scene, not 
very many people liked them compared to, say, The Second Coming, who were the premier band. And people would joke that they, the name of the band was 1%, and people would joke that it stood for 1% talent. <laughs> That's terrible. Okay. But you, and, and, you know, Richard Price from a local band, not a local band, a Bradenton band called The Load, which featured uh, guitar player Larry Reinhardt, who went on to become fairly famous. Richard said Skinner opened for The Load, and they were the worst band he'd ever seen in his life. However, that being said, through a lot of hard work and self-assessment, they turned themselves into a formidable act. It, it took years, but uh, like you said, they were the hardest working band in show business. They really were. The other thing that was noted in your book, you talk about this musician sitting in for that musician. It was like this humongous melting pot of talent that interchanged in different bands. How how dependent were they really on each other? It was like this close-knit group where you could just pick up the phone and call a drummer, or, you know, but everybody worked together interchangeably. That's true, but more important was the inspiration that the younger musicians or the undiscovered musicians got from watching their friends grab the brass ring and, you know, actually take it. Leon Wilkerson from Leonard Skinner saw, saw the Allman Brothers doing it and they realized it's not just a pipe dream. This can really be done. And then in turn, Leonard Skinner helped other bands. They helped 38 Special, whose uh, singer was Ronnie Van Zant's younger brother. And they helped Molly Hatchet too. So once you got in the door, you could kind of hold the door open for the next group to come in behind you. There was also a mention of an epic battle of the bands where six of the bands or members of those bands went on to become major stars. Now, you said Skinner wasn't there, right? No, Skinner was doing a paying gig that day, but Tom Petty was there. Tommy Talton from the group uh, later with the group Cowboy was there with his band, We the People. Donnie Van Zant was there from, uh, who, and, and Don Barnes and Jeff Carlisi with three different bands, all of whom would go on to form 38 Special. That one day. That must have been an amazing show with such a caliber of talent and then realize they go on to become major stars. Well, who knows? I, don't, I wasn't there, but maybe at that point, none of them were, were any good at all, really. Tom Petty wasn't even fronting the epics when he played uh, that gig. He was just the bass player. Ah, yeah. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Jacksonville in and of itself, that it's sort of a blue collar area, right? Where people sort of entertain themselves and everybody seemed to have a guitar and, you know, make music because a lot of this was more like a family affair. I mean, there was a lot of brothers that worked together, but people entertain themselves by playing music or, or even church influences, right? Yeah, that's a Southern thing, I think. You know, I mean, not that people didn't do it elsewhere, but it's a Southern tradition, you know, to sit on the porch and play uh, guitars and banjos and stuff. And Jacksonville, from what I understand, the history of Jacksonville, it was, you know, early on one of the more populated territories. It was like Jacksonville and St. Augustine. So it's always been this like media hub or an entertainment hub. In a past episode we had on the on the SoFlo Weird Show, we talked about how the movie make, making business was there early on, but way before Hollywood, California. And then you have these radio stations, you had these TV stations, you, you had all this stuff going on. I don't think people are aware of how much Jacksonville's history 
is important to the formation of the entire state. It, so, is, it is. It was the biggest city in the state at that time. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the early part of the 19th century, and it was the biggest city, bigger than Miami, more important than Miami. And, you know, it was the only large city south of Atlanta, really. So why did you feel compelled to tell this story? Is there Has there ever been a story about Jacksonville's music roots before? People here discuss this constantly, although the city itself doesn't want to get behind it for various reasons, the anti-authoritarian stance of the Southern Rockers being one of them. But people here discuss this constantly. So it's been on my mind for 40 years, and I had a website about Jacksonville's music history. So this is a, a, a very popular topic in this city. And I, I knew there was a market for a book of this nature. You know, honestly, I'm not a real big fan of Southern rock, but that's okay. I think that makes me more objective. And frankly, I think the story is just amazing and needed to be told whether I'm a fan of the music or not. I mean, okay. we're so, talking about- So, a, so what, is your, what is your favorite music? Oh, uh, probably old timey uh, '60s R&B and soul music, gospel, ah. gospelish kind of stuff. Which you know, some of the Southern rockers did dabble in that, like Wet Willie, you know. Mm -hmm. So I like some of the Southern rock. A lot of it I don't. But it, in it, whether you like it or not, it's an amazing story. We had a dozen major label acts come out of Jacksonville in like the period of about a decade. That's a that's a story worth telling. Yeah. Are you still playing? Uh, yeah, I, I have a little studio in my house, and I do a little uh, recording and songwriting and stuff like that. Cool. And where can somebody get uh, information about you? <laughs> I have a, web <laughs> a website, michaelrayfitzgerald.com, and I have some um, videos of my band, Chain of Fools, on YouTube. Okay. What do you really want the reader to take away from this? Oh, well, I guess we've already hit the main points, which are, uh, you know, the confluence of factors that created this explosion and the amount of work and dedication and perseverance that went into it. That's the main theme. It was like the American dream and the Protestant work ethic all rolled into one. And to me, the most interesting aspect was how these guys reconciled redneck and hippie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine what we could do in other parts of uh, the community if we just reconciled or the nation, if we just reconciled two sides together. I didn't That's think that was, at the time, I didn't think that was even possible. I mean, I was a long hair musician and, you know, we if you saw a muscle, if you were walking down the street and you saw a muscle car coming, you'd better duck into an alley or something. But see, Dickie Betts and Ronnie Van Zant weren't going to put up with that kind of harassment. They fought back. And good. Good. Very good. Okay, Michael. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it and enlightening us on Jacksonville's Southern Rock roots. I really I appreciate you having me, Mia, and you really asked some great questions. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. We just heard from Michael Ray Fitzgerald, giving us an in-depth history of Jacksonville's Southern rock music scene. We'd like to give a shout-out to the Miami Book Fair, who graciously provides us with these award-winning authors. 
If you'd like to hear more from Michael or any other participating author from the Miami Book Fair, go to miamibookfaironline.com, where all programs are available for streaming. We'll also provide a link from our website at soflowweird.com. Next, we continue our Southern Rock story with Leonard Skinnerd and the fateful events that would forever alter the course of their lives. Leonard Skinnerd had established themselves as one of the most successful rock bands of the 1970s. They had just released their fifth studio album, Street Survivors, with the iconic hits Free Bird, Gimme Three Steps, Sweet Home Alabama, and Gimme Back My Bullets, when their career would come to an abrupt halt just three days later in a tragic plane crash. At the time, Leonard Skinnerd was headlining the most ambitious tour of their career, traveling in a Convair CV240, a 30-year-old plane at the time with questionable safety issues. In fact, the band Aerosmith had looked into renting the same plane earlier and passed on it due to these safety concerns and the readiness of the flight crew. This turned out to be an eerie premonition. Leonard Skinnerd were traveling from Greenville, South Carolina to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when their plane apparently ran out of fuel. The pilots attempted to land, but the bottom of the plane clipped some trees and the aircraft went down in a swamp in Gillsburg, Mississippi. Keyboardist Billy Powell describes the harrowing moments the plane went down in the following report from News 4 Jacksonville. All I saw was treetops. I looked out my window, I was in the middle of the airplane on the right wing. I tried to get close to the back of the airplane as possible. But I got in the middle of the airplane on the right wing and um, all I saw was treetops. And at, at first it wasn't so bad, but then when it hit the, you know, the middle of the trees, it was horrible. You know, it, was, it was an experience nobody wants to ever experience, never. According to a report from the National Transportation Safety Board, the probable cause of the accident was fuel exhaustion and total loss of power from both engines due to crew inattention to fuel supply. Contributing to the fuel exhaustion were inadequate flight planning and an engine malfunction of undetermined nature in the right engine, which resulted in a higher-than-normal fuel consumption. So did the members of Aerosmith have an uncanny psychic ability to foresee this tragedy? Or was this just an accident waiting to happen? This disaster instantly killed singer Ronnie Van Zant, guitarist Steve Gaines, vocalist Cassie Gaines, assistant road manager Dean Kilpatrick, pilot Walter McCreary, and co-pilot William Gray. Other band members and road crew suffered various injuries, mostly serious. Drummer Artemis Pyle and two crew members crawled from the wreckage and hiked through the swampy woods until they finally flagged down a local farmer who sent for help. Street Survivors became Leonard Skinner's second platinum album. Out of respect for the band and their family members, MCA recalled the album's original cover, which depicted the band members engulfed in flames. The final resting place for the members of Leonard Skinner are right where this story began, in Jacksonville, Florida. It is at their gravesite where this story takes another strange turn. This is an excerpt from Charlie Carlson's book, Weird Florida. Ronnie Van Zant and the Gaineses were buried in the Jacksonville Memory Gardens in Orange Park. The site is easily recognizable from a large mausoleum etched with the band's freebird symbol. In the summer of 2000, someone vandalized the graves, pulling out the casket of Ronnie Van Zant and dumping Steve Gaines' ashes on the ground. As a result, the Freebird musicians were moved to a secret resting place. 
Today, you can see the mausoleum and the other markers where fans place flowers, but no one is buried there. Musician and singer-songwriter Charlie Daniels wrote a poem on his way to Ronnie Van Zant's funeral. It was carved onto a bench that sat at Ronnie's gravesite, and it reads, A brief candle, both ends burning, An endless mile, a bus wheel turning, A friend to share, a lonesome time, A handshake and a sip of wine. Say it loud and let it ring, That we're all part of everything, The future, present, and the past, Fly on, proud bird, you're free at last. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. like what you hear on this podcast, then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlow team and our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlow swag or buy us a coffee and we'll give you a shout out on the show. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson. Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, Lisa Pally, publicist for the Miami Book Fair, and our very special shout-out to my friend and fellow Southern Rock fan, Lloyd Preby, who assisted me in preparing for this story. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>